Well, again, we come to the Word of God this morning, and if you've been with us through the month of August, you know that we've been covering this topic of union with Christ, a rich study in which we've been looking at the depth of all that God has given us in Christ, gives new meaning to that little short phrase, in Christ. We are in Him. But as we look at a doctrine so rich as that, one of the dangers for the church is for us to hoard our treasures. I think of the dragon smog in Tolkien's The Hobbit, who loves all of his gold and he simply sits there upon it and just soaks in the fact that he has all of these riches beneath him. So too, Christians can be lulled in doing nothing else but sitting on their riches and living out their days. But this response to the riches of God's grace in Christ runs counter to God's intention for us. It's like the serv a servant to a king who's tasked to distribute a, a bountiful amount of food to the peasants of the kingdom. But the, and the servant has been told that he's able to partake of as much of that food as he wants. But he's been tasked to, and sent out to bless others with that food. But as he goes, rather as he stays, he simply partakes and eats the food himself and doesn't end up distributing it to those who need it. Yes, he is allowed to enjoy it, but to simply do that and not hand it out is fundamentally disobeying the orders of the king. The same is true for the church. We've been given amazing treasures in Christ, but we've also been tasked to pass them out, to pass them on to others, and yet we can often keep it to ourselves. I didn't originally plan on preaching this message as a part of our Union in Christ series. If you've been with us, I said we were going to do it for the month of August, and that was my original intention when I mapped out that series. But as I reflected more on what Union in Christ was and where it left us, I was pressed with a burden that we don't just sit with these wonderful treasures of the gospel, but we recognize that union with Christ actually pushes us out and further. It pushes us on mission for Jesus as much as it gives us riches in Christ. Indeed, we've seen that the doctrine of our union with Christ causes us to wonder, causes us to worship, for all that God has done for us in Christ. But it should not then turn into simply spiritual navel-gazing. This doctrine, rightly understood, pushes us down into the gospel and then propels us out into the world. It deepens our worship and it drives our witness. We've spent the last four weeks deepening our worship and so now on the final week of this series, I want us to look at how union with Christ drives our witness. And I think this is also appropriate on this day that we had our kickoff uh, event at 9 a.m. and we're kicking off many of our ministries for the fall. We're looking at surging ahead with the ministries of Foothill Bible Church. 
And as we dive back into all of this activity, we need to make sure that we're focused on the right things. We need to make sure that we're being obedient to all that God wants us to be about. And so as we jump into this this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer, asking God would speak to us through his word today. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would please speak to us loud and clear through your word. May you cause each one of our hearts to be humble, for us to receive what you have for us. And Father, may we have a fundamental desire to do what you, our Lord, wants us to do. May we be so captivated by all that you have done for us that we can't help but open our mouths and share to the world around us what you have done. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. amen. And so this morning, I wanna show you four ways that our union with Christ defines our witness. Four ways it defines our witness, and I pray that doing so will stir all, us, all of us up to be more faithful in our evangelism and our missions efforts. We need to be faithful to the Lord as we push out and as we go and as we send and as we speak for Christ. And so the first way that union with Christ defines our witness is number one, because we are united to Christ, we represent Jesus. Because we are united to Christ, we represent Jesus. Based upon all that we've looked at the last four weeks, the fact that we are in Christ and Christ is in us means that we who are here on earth represent Jesus. We are his representatives here upon this earth. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven, but he has left us and charged us to be his representatives in his stead. As you know, the gospel message is centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. He, being God's son, came to earth, left the glory of heaven, took on a human body like you and I, and he walked upon this earth. He made it clear while he was here that he was not here of his own authority, he was not here on his own mission, but he was sent by the Father to accomplish all that the Father had given him to do. John 6, verse 38 says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was on a mission for the will of the Father. And then he could rightly say on the night before he died, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, of course, the accomplishment would not fully happen until he was a uh, he had died upon the cross and risen again and ascended to heaven and, and so that work was yet still to be done on the moment he says this but he knows that it's, it's going to happen. And so he accomplished all that the Father had given him through his death, burial, resurrection and ascension. And through this work he paid for our sins. He redeemed his people. He gave new life, eternal life and he promised to send the Spirit. In other words, he accomplished salvation. He accomplished salvation. But we have to ask the question. When Jesus ascended to heaven, was he abandoning this work? Was he just going, all right, my work here is done. See ya. And he's out. Was he giving up? Absolutely not. His work continues. His work went on. 
Not through his physical presence, but through what we talked about last week, his body. His body, which is the church. We are the members of the body of Christ. We are the visible representation of Christ upon this earth. As we live out in the power of the Spirit of Christ. And so we, the church, are stand-ins for Christ. We represent him, which is why Jesus sent us out into the world. So I want us to begin this morning by opening your, our personal copy of God's Word to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. I invite you to turn there. John, chapter 20. We're going to look at a, an account that took place immediately following the resurrection of Christ when he came back from the dead, really on the evening of that very day. He made several appearances to his followers, showed himself to be alive, to prove that death did not have the final say. This passage is one of those appearances. John chapter 20, verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, there's much that we could say about these verses, but I want to draw your attention just to a few things. The first is that he miraculously appeared in that room that evening. Notice that John notes that the doors were locked because of fear of the Jews. The disciples who had followed Jesus, given their lives to him, and now he was crucified, he was buried, it seemed to be over, and now, since the resurrection happened, the high priest even said that they should, the Roman soldiers should spread the lie that the disciples stole the body. So there's a sense in which the spotlight is even on them because of that rumor. So they're afraid. They're huddled in this room. And it says that Jesus came and stood among them. He miraculously came in the room. We don't know how exactly did he just come through the door in a, in a, in a ghost-like fashion. Did he uh, blow open the door with his power? We don't know. It seems that he just appeared among them. But he showed his resurrection power, that he was not the same man that he was before. Something was different. But in many ways, it was, there was something still the same. Because notice that he shows them, in verse 20, his physical body. He highlights to them that he still has flesh and blood. He is the very one who was crucified, who had the nails pierced through his hands and the spear that pierced his side, and he showed them that evidence. He wasn't just an apparition. He wasn't just a ghost. He was there in flesh and blood. But notice also what his first words were to them. What do you think he would say to a group of huddled disciples that he's invested his life into? You think, oh, guys, what are you doing? Um, hello, I'm resurrected from the dead, and I've taught you for three years. You should be standing out there with power. You stand with the risen Lord. 
But instead they're huddled. But notice he doesn't rebuke. The end of verse 19, it says he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness. May it be with you, my people. And he repeats it again in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Here he was, their Lord and their friend, giving comfort to his fearful disciples, knowing their weaknesses and yet not condemning them for it. He gives them comfort and peace. But what I want to highlight more importantly for our consideration this morning is that after this words of peace, look at what he says in verse 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now in these in our English, we have the words sent and sending. They come from the same English word. In the Greek, they're two different words, but more importantly, they're two different verb tenses. And in what it says, as the Father has sent me, this is a verb form that talks about, it's called the perfect, and it has a past action with present results. In other words, the Father did send me. I came, I was born of a woman, I came upon the earth, but my sending has continuing results that are ongoing. And so there's this sense in which, yes, Jesus had a mission upon this earth that was limited to the, the time upon his earth, but this earth, but there's a sense in which his mission has an abiding influence and effect upon into the future. In other words, his mission isn't fully done yet. Even though he is going to heaven, he ascends to heaven after this, he's saying that my sending continues to have an effect. One old scholar noted this. He said the apostles were commissioned to carry on Christ's work, not to begin a new one. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You are going to be continuing this work. The continuing effect of my mission, my sending, is going to play out in your sending. Author D.A. Carson concurs with this when he writes, Christ's disciples do not take over Jesus' mission. His mission continues and is effective in their ministry. You see how we're merging to this union with Christ? Jesus with his people as they go. Jesus didn't leave us an abandoned ship and go to heaven. He continues to be with his people, the church, as they go out and really in one sense continue on the very mission that he came to do. And so Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go into the world with the message of the gospel. And it's here from this verse that we see that one of the realities of who we are as Christians is that we are sent ones. We are sent ones. You see, Israel in the Old Testament, God told them to stay and obey. He told them to stay in the land, cultivate faithfulness, obey my laws and my rules, and you will be a, a showcase to the world that you know such a great God as me. So they were called to stay and obey in their land. But the church in the New Testament is different. And that's what makes this call here so radical to this first, these first century Jews. They were sent to go. They were, they were sent to scatter and to share the message it wasn't to stay and obey, it was go and tell. And so we too, like the disciples, the spiritual descendants of those first disciples, we carry on the mission of Jesus as we represent him in the world. We are his representatives. We go carrying on his mission as we are united to him, as he is in us. 
We represent him wherever we are. We represent him in the grocery checkout line. We represent him as we stand on the sideline to our kids' games. We represent him as we talk with our coworkers in the office or in the firehouse. We represent him as we, as we minister to our neighbors. We represent him as we're driving down the road. We represent him as we make decisions about our lives, as we interact with family members. We represent him wherever we are because we are in Christ. And we don't have time to look into this this morning, but how then should this motivate us to live lives of holiness? What is the moral force upon our lives to recognize that we are representatives of the risen Christ? Our character, our lives, should resemble Jesus, be Christ-like because we represent him. And part of that is our witness as well. So the first thing I want us to see is that our union with Christ defines our mission because it teaches us that we represent him. But secondly, this morning, we are united to Christ so we speak for Jesus. Because we're united to him, we also speak for him. We aren't just mannequins that stand around looking like Jesus, but we open our mouths and speak. And Paul understood this reality and highlights it in 2 Corinthians 5. I want you to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here, Paul calls us as believers ambassadors. Ambassadors. Pick up in verse 14. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the, ministry, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of, behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to see how Paul calls Christians here ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. Jesus doesn't physically stand upon this earth right now. We pray for the day he does. We wait for the day when he will stand upon this earth again. But right now, he's not the one talking over the backyard fence. It's you talking to your neighbor. You're representing Christ in those moments. We stand in for him in this world. 
Now this concept of an ambassador comes from the political realm, right? Where uh, a head of state, a, a king, a president, an emperor will appoint an ambassador to go to a foreign land and represent him in that land. He acts on behalf of the king. He speaks for the king or the president. Everything that he does while he's there is on behalf of that head of state. But he doesn't just stand there. He doesn't just physically represent. He speaks for him. He's a spokesman. In fact, there's often things that the sender wants him to say. In this case, Paul identifies believers as ambassadors for Christ who are sent out into the world who are delivering a message. We're delivering a message he calls here of reconciliation. The fact that every single human being who's lost in their sin can be reconciled to their creator. It's the good news. It's the gospel that we are to speak and share. Friends, how do we recognize this designation that you and I are ambassadors for Christ sent out into this world? It begins in verse 14 that we recognize that the love of Christ controls us. That Jesus Christ died for us and therefore we love him for what he has done. And that because of that, as Paul says in verse 15, we no longer live for ourselves. This isn't our life. It's, we don't set the agenda. Jesus sets the agenda, and so we live for him who for their sake died and was raised. The gospel is to stay upon our minds and to recognize it forms our identity, as we looked at the first message of the series, and that then we live out for him. And so we recognize, verse 17, that we're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. We have a new identity in Christ and we live that out in that we are ambassadors for him and we speak for him. This is why Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that they would be his witnesses. A familiar verse to you, no doubt. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These concentric circles of geography, starting with the city and moving out to the region and out to the ends of the earth. Friends, here's the point for us today. We, as representatives of Jesus Christ, must speak for Jesus. We must be ambassadors with the gospel. There's a quote, no doubt you've heard, that's often attributed to St. Augustine that says, preach the gospel and, uh, and if necessary, use words. Right? No doubt you've heard that. Unfortunately, there's not any evidence that he said it and there's no biblical basis to back it up. Yes, our actions and lives should be holy and righteous, as I mentioned a moment ago. How we live does matter. But is that all that matters? Is that the only thing that comprises our witness? Absolutely not. We're witnesses. We've got to speak. Think of a witness that's called to the stand in the courtroom and they bring him up there, they swear him in and then they're supposed to give witness to something and they don't say a word. What kind of witness is that? Pretty lousy. If you're the convicted one, you're kind of going, oh, come on, please say something, right? It's a bad witness. So too, for believers to be called to be witnesses for Christ and yet we don't open our mouths and give testimony to him, we're not being good witnesses. Friends, we, 
as followers of Christ, as a church, as a body of Christ, Photo Bible Church, we are witnesses to Jesus Christ here in the Inland Empire of Southern California. We are to give testimony, to be a, a beacon of hope, to be a testimony of God's grace to us, and we are seeking to share this ministry of reconciliation to all we come in contact with. You take the hundreds of us that are here and we scatter, we go from being the church gathered to the church scattered throughout the week and we touch so many different people. We get to interact with all sorts of folks in all different spheres of, of this community and we can be a witness and a light for Christ as we're there. God has placed you in the unique places that you have with the friends and the neighbors and the family that you have to be able to speak for Christ in those places. God has given you the ministry of reconciliation that you might be a beacon of hope to share that they can be reconciled to their creator. Their lives can be healed. There is hope in Christ. He was crucified for sinners. We've been united to Christ in our salvation and therefore we should declare that truth to all who would listen. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 to continue to see this. I love this, these verses and can't pass up the opportunity to turn here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Stop right there. This defines the salvation that we have in Christ. Another way to talk about the blessings that we have in Jesus. We are chosen race. We're a chosen people. We're elected unto salvation. We are a royal priesthood. There's, there's a we will reign with Christ and we have a priestly role in that we are seeking to mediate between God and men as we share of Christ and we are a holy nation. We're to be holy, set apart unto him. We're a people for his own possession, set apart unto him for him. But what is the purpose of all of that salvation? What's God intend for us to do in light of all those blessings? Look at where the verse goes on. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, we recognize the mercy that we've received in Christ. And so then we want to proclaim those excellencies of Jesus to all those around. Our mouths should not be silenced when we recognize how excellent Jesus is, how wonderful he is and the salvation that he offers. The salvation that we have received should so radically transform and captivate us that it prompts us to want to declare and proclaim those excellencies to all around. Yes, even to those who aren't gonna understand. Yes, to the, even to those who might mock and criticize, even to those who don't think they have a sin problem. Yes, we declare the excellencies of Christ because we are called to. We have been shown great mercy and we want others to receive and experience that mercy as well. Friends, there are so many around us that don't know the excellencies of Jesus. There's so many that haven't heard 
that there is one who came from heaven to take on our sins and to redeem us from our lost sinful state. There's so many that don't know that the brokenness that they feel every single day because of life in this fallen world can be healed through Jesus Christ. That there is a hope and a future for those who are in Christ. And so may our hearts be continually radically changed by the gospel that we would so want to share that to others. So many people are don't know the purpose for which they were created, believing that they were an evolutionary accident rather than a specific creation of God bearing his image. And so what do we speak? We speak the excellencies of Christ. We speak the gospel message. That's what we've been saying. We need to speak it. And this message can easily be remembered in four parts. And you could put different labels on it. I'm borrowing for this morning the labels found in the book of the month that we are advertising and offering to you at, at a cheap rate by, math, uh, by Matt Smethurst, his book, Before You Share Your Faith. He outlines the gospel in, in, in four parts, and they start with R's that make it memorable. The ruler, the revolt, the rescue, and the response. The ruler, the revolt, the rescue, and the response. The ruler. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who is before all things, and he is the one who spoke all things into existence. He is holy, and he is righteous, and all that he does is good. But because he's holy and righteous, he demands that all people who live with him, who come to him, be holy and righteous. His standard is perfection. But there's a problem. Humanity that he created, perfectly good, revolted against him. There was, they rebelled against him so that each one of us are lost in our sins. Instead of loving and worshiping the Lord, our affection is for ourselves. And we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of this earth. We love ourselves and this self-love affects all that we do. We fall short of God's perfect standard. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, and we all deserve to die because of that sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. But there's hope. God did not leave us in our sin, and that brings us to the rescue. He came to rescue us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Because of his rich mercy and grace, God sent his son to live a perfect life and to die in our place upon the cross. He died on that cross outside Jerusalem in the first century. It was a historical event that actually took place. He was buried in the ground. But then also what was a historical event is that he rose from the grave, witnessed by many hundreds of people. This is the good news, that Jesus Christ did not remain dead, but he rose again and now offers life to all who would believe in him. And so this is good news, but it's only good if we respond correctly to it. And that brings us to the response. When we see all that God did for us in Christ, we must respond in three ways. One, we must turn from our sin. We can't continue on in the same ways that we lived as if we were still in our revolt or still in our rebellion. We must turn away, make a 180 degree turn away from our sin, away from our rebellion, away from our idolatry and turn to God. We must repent. But secondly, we must trust Christ. We turn from our sin and we trust in Christ. 
to save us. We trust his sacrifice paid for our sins specifically. It was our sins that were paid upon that cross. We trust his perfect record, the righteousness that he lived to be credited to our account that we, by believing in his name, we are counted righteous in Christ. We called justification. We are declared righteous. By trusting in him, we are accepted before God. We don't earn our way. We can't earn our way. We can't get God to like us by enough good works because all of our good works are filthy rags. Instead, we trust his perfect works. And thirdly, we treasure Jesus, which is really an overflow and an outgrowth of trusting Jesus. But we don't just trust Jesus, get our card punched and move on. As we've been looking at the last month, we treasure Christ for all that he's done, that we are together with him, that he is our life. We treasure him above everything else. And so I ask you, friends, this morning, do you know this gospel? Could you get through it in some sort of way to tell someone who is asking to know, how can I have eternal life? Maybe we need to practice Practice sharing this in a succinct way that we can be able to walk it through with somebody. That it can be quick upon our tongues. That it can dwell upon our, heart, dwell upon our hearts. Because it's only in Christ that we have our rest. It's only in Christ that we have our greatest treasure. We have no hope without him. We are not saved without him. As I said, there's nothing that we could do to pay him back. Jesus doesn't save us, then we go out and live for him trying to pay back our, the debt we owe. Salvation in Jesus is not just about moral reform, trying to be better people. It's about throwing ourselves upon Christ, about trusting in him, about confessing our sin and our guilt. And clinging to Jesus as a drowning man clings to a life ring in a raging sea. Recognize if I let go of this, I die. And so we all, sinners, from beginning to end, till all of our days, we cling to Christ. Recognize he alone is our salvation. That is the desperation with which sinners cling to Jesus. And let me just say this morning, if you are here and you don't know Christ, if you've never clung to him like that, and you're still clinging upon your good works, your good track record, the fact that you're better than somebody else. Friend, that's like clinging to a rock out in the middle of the ocean. It doesn't save you. It only sinks us further. We've got to let go of all of our means of trying to save ourselves and trusting in our own goodness and throw ourselves upon the goodness of Christ. Only there is salvation found when we let go of everything and give it to him. So I encourage you, don't leave this morning without knowing whether you know Jesus. You can come talk to me, you can talk to somebody else here. We'd love to be able to share with you how you can know Jesus personally and have that hope in that eternal life. But to those of us who do know Christ, to the church, how is your evangelism? How is your speaking for Jesus? Are you seeking opportunities to let the gospel be known? Are you praying for opportunities? Are you praying for those in your life that don't know Christ? Are you seeking to 
put him on display, proclaim his excellencies. Number of things to be able to help you to do this. Help push us one step further this year into increasing our evangelistic efforts. I encourage you, pick up that book that we've highlighted now several times. Pastor Taylor's evangelism class will give you the tools to be able to help you to be able to share this more effectively as you take it together with others in the church here. And we need to pray for boldness. This is the age of boldness for Christ. Not the, t not the age to shrink back. Not the age to be silenced by cultural pressures and gatekeepers. No, we keep our mouths open just as the Christians were in the first century. And pray that God would give us that boldness and confidence as we go out and speak for him. So we've looked at how being united to Jesus shows us that we represent him and that we speak for him. I want to show you thirdly this morning that be, because we're united to Christ, we represent him uh, and we make disciples for Jesus. Point three, we make disciples of Jesus. So we, as we said, we're called to speak about Jesus to those who do not know, but our desire is not simply that they listen to the gospel and then that's it. We want to see people believe in that gospel. We want to see them actually treasure Jesus. Paul calls this winning them for Christ. This want to see them converted. But we're not just seeking conversions. As if we get them converted, sign on the dotted line, and then we're good to go and move on to the next person. No, the commission given to us is that we make disciples, not just make converts. As the command is in Matthew 28. As we've said, when someone's converted, their position radically changes. They go from being dead in their sins to being alive in Christ. They're united to Christ and they get all these benefits of justification and sanctification and adoption and they enjoy the communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit. But this means that when someone comes to Christ when they're converted, they're not just left to fend for themselves, but they are to be taught. They're to be baptized they're to be trained and nurtured in their faith. We help them to know and understand the Bible. We help them to know how Christians are to live based upon the scriptures. And we teach them how knowing Jesus changes everything that we do. This is simply what is called discipling. We disciple one another. We disciple people in the faith as they are converted. Then we disciple them to help them to know how to follow Jesus better. And this is what all Christians are to be engaged with at some level, in our homes and in the church. As Jesus said in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then what comes after baptizing? It's teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And it's because of this passage, because of this commission, that our mission statement here at Foothill Bible Church is to make and mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ because we want to be faithful to what Jesus has given us to do. Discipling is what we are to do. That begins with sharing the gospel, seeing someone converted, and then helping them to grow in the faith that they might be sent out to be able to tell others about Christ. You'll notice at the end of these verses, the last line, it says, behold, Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age. Here we get another reminder of our union with Christ. Jesus is with us. He did not leave us. He left us upon this earth, but he is with us as we go. 
And so as George Peters noted in his book, A Biblical Theology of Missions, he says, it is of tremendous significance to realize that we are not doing mission work for Christ, but rather with Christ. Friends, Jesus goes with us as we embark on the mission, the task that he gave us. He's not sitting back and watching us do this. He has rolled up his sleeves and he is engaged with us. We are in him, he is in us, and he goes with us as we go. And so each day as we live our lives, we go to work, we're in our home, shepherding our children, we're on mission for Christ. We're to be praying and looking for opportunities to share the love of Jesus. Making disciples is what Jesus commissioned us to do. But we're not just to create a bunch of isolated disciples. Create a disciple, boom, stamp on the head, all right, you're good, and then okay, here's another one, boom, and then good, and we just kind of leave them scattering, wandering around in the, in the field of the world, uh, being disciples of Jesus. No, what do, what do Christians do? They gather, they gather into churches. And so that leads us to our fourth uh, way that the union with Christ defines our, our witness. And that is because we're united to Christ, we plant churches for Jesus. We plant churches for Jesus. Jesus came to redeem a people for himself. Not a bunch of individuals, but a people. And his intention from the beginning was that those people would gather into churches. They would be communities of his disciples. They would be bonded together by a common love for one another. They would be unified in such a way that would display to the world that they are his disciples. And we looked at this a little bit last week, right? How the body of Christ is to be unified and that communicates our union with Christ. But there's something here we need to realize. That the church together is able to witness to the world in a way that an individual Christian cannot. The church corporately is able to witness to the world in a way that an individual Christian cannot. In other words, we need each other to communicate something about Jesus. The church was not an afterthought or an accident. It was central to God's plan to display his glory to the nations. Look with me to John Chapter 17, the book of John, chapter 17. We looked at this last week, but it's worth turning to again. Good John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Again, the church corporately is able to witness to the world in a way that individual Christian cannot. We, as a unified church, are able to communicate that God, the Father, has sent the Son, Jesus says. As we are unified, we communicate this about Jesus. We communicate also that the Father has loved us. Jesus says that it's by this unity, this being becoming perfectly one, that the world may know that the Father has loved us just as he loved the Son. 
there's something supernatural through the unity that is found in the church. And this is exactly why disunity in the church gives Christ a bad, na bad name. Because you see, our unity communicates something about Christ. Our disunity sends the wrong message about Christ. If Christians in the church cannot get along, then there, is there anything special going on? Is God and his spirit working at all? If they look just like the world? Instead, we should be known by our love for one another. Flip back a couple chapters to John 13. John 13, verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see the evangelistic component to our love? Our fellowship and love and care and affection for one another is not to be a surface level thing, just be something that we kind of like people and we, we have to uh, endure one another as we show up to small group and as we come to church together. No, there's to be a deep love and through that we communicate something to the world supernatural. We witness to the world of the love of Christ. And friends, this is why the early Christians planted churches. The book of Acts is unmistakable that the pattern was that people were converted to Christ in a region or a locale and then they were formed and, and gathered into churches. Paul went around the known world preaching the gospel, but he didn't just win people to Jesus and leave them there. He established churches. This is the New Testament model. Evangelize, plant churches. And this is why Foothill Bible Church has been committed to planting churches both domestically and internationally because we believe this is what God intends to do with his gospel, to win people to Jesus and to plant them into churches. We've done that in multiple instances. The most recent was Summit Bible Church that was just prayed for this morning in Fontana. 2010, we sent out a number of families and one of our elders to go and plant that church in Fontana and by God's grace, it continues to be a thriving church in that region. We wanna do more both domestically and internationally. We continue to be committed to planting churches overseas. As much as possible, we seek that the churches that are planted in other countries are, or the people that we send to other countries are about the work of planting churches. They may support other things such as Bible translation, but the overall they're, they're connected to a church planting effort because this is God's intention for how the gospel goes forth. So here we are in 2022, and as a church, Foothill Bible Church, we want to continue to be about planting churches, reaching this world for Christ, reaching our region for Christ. And that means that there are some here who may go to foreign lands to be a part of a church planting effort that God's glory might be proclaimed among a, a different people group of a different language. It might mean that your children are sent to go and be a part of that work. It might mean that you go. It might mean that some of us no longer are part of Foothill Bible Church but are part of a new church planting effort somewhere else in this region or maybe this state or maybe our country because we're sent ones and we're seeking while we're here, while we have breath to be about the work of telling the world of the excellencies of Christ. We go out for the sake of the name of Christ. He is worthy of our lives, amen? And there's no greater joy than being used of God for his purposes. That is a life well lived. That is a life that we can put our head in the grave and know that we have given ourselves 
for Jesus and his glory. But as we know, when we evangelize and speak for Christ, it comes at a cost. Believers in other parts of the world know this even at a deeper level than we do. But being united to Jesus, as we've been talking about, is not a bed of roses in this world. It leads to suffering. And that brings us to our fifth and final point for this morning. Because we're united to Jesus Christ, we suffer for Jesus. We suffer for him. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul emphatically states, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice the in Christ Jesus. If you would desire to live a godly life in Christ, united to Christ, you will be persecuted. This means that harassment and ridicule, persecution and pursuit will come to us because of our identification with Jesus. Of course, Jesus promised this would happen in John chapter 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Because of this, it's not surprising when we read the book of Acts and through the rest of the New Testament that Christians are regularly persecuted. They are imprisoned, they're mobbed, they're beaten, and they're even killed for Christ because they are united to him, because they are identified with him. It's not only because we hold to this certain belief that we're persecuted for, but because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, and so when persecution happens to us, it is persecution that is intended for Jesus himself. You'll remember what Jesus said to Saul, who was later Paul on the road to Damascus. We quoted this earlier in the series. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus says from heaven. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul went out to imprison believers. He went out to persecute Christians. But Jesus says, when you go out to persecute Christians, you're persecuting me. Jesus remains with his people. When the church is persecuted, Jesus himself is persecuted. And friends, this should give comfort to us that it's not us personally that, that are, we're not the ones being attacked. It's Christ being attacked. He bears the weight. The world hates him and so they persecute us. But 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5 says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We have sufferings and afflictions, friends, but we also have comfort through Christ. It is promised to us. And yet, through the suffering, there is evangelistic opportunity. God so ordains that we are pressed down, that we are persecuted, that we, are, that we suffer so that the name of Christ might go out, the fragrance of Jesus might come out of us as spices that are ground into the mortar. 1 Peter chapter 3, 13 through 17, it says, Now who is there to harm you? if you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being ready, prepare, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that you should be if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Friends, we have the honor of representing Jesus Christ. We are his ambassadors. As we suffer for his name, and we have it, we suffer with glad spirits, knowing that we do it in Christ's name, people will ask us, how do you still have hope? How is it that in the midst of the persecution you still have hope? And we're to be ready, always prepared to make a defense. We quote that as our apologetic verse, but notice that the context is suffering for our faith. We've got to be ready to have a defense in the midst of our suffering. And so friends, we are vessels for God's use. We go out for the sake of the name. And so let me close this morning with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter four. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Friends, we suffer when we carry the word so that grace may extend to more and more people. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would please fuel our hearts with a love for Christ, a recognition of all that he has given us in the gospel, that we might be on mission for him, be on mission with him, Oh, Lord, we thank you for the promise that we are not left here alone, but through your spirit, your presence is abiding with us, that we carry this gospel out into the world with you, our Savior, in us and by us. I pray that you would cause us as a church to more faithfully proclaim that message and hold forth the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.